are listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. Putt is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am the executive director of PUT. I'm really glad to have you all join us today. We are talking about a topic that is extremely important to the survival of not just independent pharmacy, but really all pharmacies. And that's the topic of direct and indirect remuneration fees, DIR fees. I'm extremely excited about our panel today. I'd like to start by introducing my wonderful co-host, Lauren Young, board member at PUT. Hey, Lauren. Hi, how are you? Good, really, really good. I know that uh, this is a topic that's extremely important to you. You and I have had many conversations about DIR fees and what's going to happen if they don't get reined in here soon. Absolutely. We own three pharmacies, my family does, and I'm friends with a network of other pharmacy owners. And it's amazing the amount of money that PBMs can steal from us through this one dirty little trick. I know. It's criminal. It's really criminal. And we're going to talk more about that. I'd love to take this moment to introduce a friend of Putt's, uh, CEO of American Pharmacy Cooperative Incorporated. That's Tim Hamrick. Tim, welcome to the show. It's really nice to have you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I'm pretty much a rookie at these things, so you'll have to hold my hand through the process here. But we're, I personally am happy, happy to be here with you and appreciate all that that Putt does and that you do and, and Lauren does for, for pharmacy. I appreciate you. Glad to have you. Really glad. And then of course, you've got uh, somebody really incredible on your staff, uh, someone who's an, a great friend to Putt and has been for a long time. Greg Reibold, welcome. Glad to have you back. Hey, Monique. Thr- thrilled to be here as always. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you. So, uh, Greg, you and I talk a lot about a lot of different issues that affect pharmacy. Um, We've been talking about DIR fees and and why this matters now is because, you know, earlier this month, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, they closed their comment period on uh, this matter of of a proposed rule. And part of this was affecting price concessions and DIR fees. You guys submitted a fantastic letter. And then in addition to that, uh, and, and you know, Tim, I'd, I'd love your perspective on this as well. You all sponsored a, a, a report from Three Axis Advisors on the impact of this. I'm curious, uh, before we talk about the report itself, I, I'd love to know, you know, what motivated you? Tim, why, why was APCI involved in this? What, what, what is it that um, has you all taking such uh, big steps on such an important topic? Well, obviously, we've, both you and Lauren have already alluded to the fact that this is a very, very disappointing situation we find ourselves in. Uh, some of the practices that we, we have believed have been going on for quite some time, you know, the reason that we commissioned this study, I mean, I'll back up and say we've been blessed to have a relationship with Three Axis for a long time. Uh, we met Eric a long time ago. 
understood the passion they have for uncovering the truth of what's going on in our healthcare system, our payment system, and and uh, how seniors are negatively Im impacted in, in the, our current environment. Um, you know, what Eric does and what Antonio does and what the Reaxis does uh, needs to stand on its own. Uh, I, th I think they um, do a great job of gathering data and analyzing it and, and spitting out what the data says. And you, and you know, we commissioned this study based on our opinion of what's happening in, in the Part D system. It was just our opinion, what we thought was going on. Uh, and without this, a, this comprehensive of a study where over 8 million claims were, were reviewed, you know, it would just be that, our opinion. And um, we feel like that opinion that we've carried for all these years is based on a strong suspicion. suspicion. We, we didn't know for sure. But pretty evident that this uh, study confirms our suspicion. And today, PCMA kind of came out and questioned the, the bias of three axis, their motivation, rather than provide information that would prove their, their theory or their, their results. You know, we're interested in the facts. We, we feel pretty confident based on the study that was done that we know the truth, that we, we want to accurately um, kind of share the truth and make sure we're saying the, the, the right thing. So, hey, you know, I would be happy to encourage Three Axis to participate in a public forum where they brought their side and PCMA brought their side, and we let the public decide what the truth is. This I am one hundred percent for that. You, the amen to that. Sounds that like right. you threw down the gauntlet there, doesn't it? I'll take it to see a fundraising way. opportunity. <laughs> but if we want, if we want to know what the truth is, let's both sides put it out there. I, I don't think I would have to push three axes too too hard to or drag them to that meeting. I can tell you that. <laughs> and I hear you. You know, I have had the occasion to to talk with both Eric and Antonio and and have read their work. And I'm always so grateful that we have them because they do take a, a, a good, strong look at the data and they can and will call out what is wrong and inappropriate. And, and they're not, you know, they're really not in it to prove anything other than what the numbers say. And the numbers time and time again, like you said, have, have shown what we've all suspected. And it's great to to have it out there. And and of course, you know, PCMA is going to try to take down the messenger because that's what they do. It's 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 fascinating. Greg, this uh, report, walk us through it. What is it? What does it say? Tell us what what all's in it here. Yeah, and you know, look, it's funny how things evolve. Um, and certainly, I think initially initially what they were looking at is, hey, you know, are there savings if you move to a transparent public benchmark like NADAC versus the current AWP model? Um, and, you know, they went in there with earnest and the numbers are going to take them where, where they're going to take them. But I think, and obviously I don't want to speak for them, but I think when you when you read the report in total, there are some fascinating things. First of all, there are potentially billions of dollars to be saved a year, right? I think it was like 18 billion in 2021 via a move to NADAC. So you're talking about saving money, but more importantly than that, you're talking about transparency, right? You're talking about a transparent benchmark where you don't have AWP, you don't have MAC pricing, you don't have effective rate pricing, effective rate contracts, and you know all of these different incredibly complicated contractual provisions they come up with, DIR, uh, GER, 
name it, they're all hidden behind, you know, trade secrets and confidentiality. And nobody knows today in part D what the price of a drug is. And that's not a coincidence. That's that's by design. That's why they've made the mousetrap that they've made, if you will. Right. And so to, to be able to say, hey, listen, here's a here's a way to save billions of dollars and bring some sunlight into this process, into this sort of crazy prescription drug market is an amazing thing. And I think it's really just a jumping off point because there's, you know, there's, there's other savings out there. Right now, NADAC isn't mandatory reporting. How would that analysis look? Um, so it, it, it's really a groundbreaking study, I think, right? Because people have been talking about, hey, transparency can save money for years and years and years, but, but there's been nothing to show. And so here you've got the study that that confirms what I think all of us have been really, I would say, pharmacists first and foremost in healthcare have been screaming from the mountaintops, right? Like this this lone voice screaming into the void. Um, well, it's sure nice to have somebody willing to look under the rocks, do the math, and have the data bear that out. And I think that's exactly what happened. But beyond that, you know, they sort of drilled down into this single plan analysis, and boy, there's some fascinating takeaways. And I think there's takeaways not just for Part D, frankly, right? I think these are pharmacy-wide. We, we see a situation where generics are deflating, um, deflationary effect of 8.7% over a 30-month period, but the price for seniors at the counter rose 51%. You're talking about a 59% spread between where the price of generics went down and the price for seniors at the counter. And, and these are the people, you know, it's, it's cliche, right? It's, it's the wolf guarding the sheep. These are the people who are supposed to be keeping costs down and they've designed and implemented reimbursement plans that have driven costs up 51% in a three-year period on America's seniors on fixed incomes. It's, it's almost unbelievable. It's, you know, from my perspective, almost a bombshell. And then lo and behold, Monique, we've also uncovered, or three axis uncovered, that there's copay clawbacks going on, right? They're literally charging beneficiaries cost shares and copays that are higher than the pharmacy is reimbursed. And it's all, you know, incredibly masked under retroactive fees that may, you know, may be assessed from pharmacies months to up to probably 12 months later. The billions of dollars is incredibly compelling. But I think if you drill down to some of those other points, the only conclusion that I can draw is, you know, these entities cannot be trusted to negotiate drug prices, period. I think that's the takeaway. They've lost their privilege um, and betrayed the public trust. I totally agree with you, Greg. And I love the fact that APCI is coming out as a proud supporter of this because as everyone on the podcast knows, I listen to state legislative hearings, and right now one of their talking points is that the drug wholesalers and the PSAOs and the pharmacy co-ops are all okay with being tied to one of the three big wholesalers in the Fortune 500 list. And even though you know the three big PBMs are all owned or own some of the companies that are in that Fortune 500 list, the top 20, I think it's really important that this is one of the first reports that we've seen a drug wholesaler, you know, another part of the supply chain really get involved. It's not the pharmacy owners that are, you know, complaining about DIR fees. It's now another part of the puzzle that's showing, you know, a little more transparency. Now, when we were 
looking at the report, DIR is a term that's become something of a catch-all term, right? So a lot of times when when we're talking about this, we're talking about all the things that happen, all the price concessions, all the clawbacks, but really for the purposes of this conversation and the report that, that you guys had done, that Three Axis did, we're not talking about that kind of DIR fee, right, Greg? Aren't we really talking about something that's just specific to Medicare? Yeah, and you know, DIR is a word that gets, I think, used now really broadly and really loosely, right? It's it's not, you know, anymore refer it's not an exact science when it's referred to, but it is, you know, it it it's born out of the federal code and the Part D program. And listen, if you read the federal code, I don't want to overbore you guys. You guys know I can tend to get legal, but you know, if you read the federal code, the whole concept was, hey, beneficiaries are going to be afforded the benefit of discounts whether those are you know, on upfront price concessions or whether they're after the fact, retrospective, direct and indirect remuneration fees, beneficiaries are going to get the benefit of these discounts. And so when we're talking about DIR in part D, really what we're talking about is our pharmacy price concessions for our purposes. Now I would note, and I think our comments reference at least in passing, that you also have drug maker, drug manufacturer rebates, right? And those can also constitute DIR, their discounts from the manufacturer. I think the fascinating thing is when you look at Part D today, as it is, the cost shares when, you know, and beneficiaries right now, when they're in their deductible phase, they pay 100%. And then when they're in the initial phase and the coverage gap, they're paying 25% of the price of the drug. But they're paying 25% of, of sort of the gross price at the counter they are not getting the benefit of those discounts, right? They're not getting the benefit of the pharmacy discounts. They're not getting the benefit of the drug maker discounts, period. I mean, you know, it's just, it's at the counter, they are not. And so the price that they're paying is an inflated price. Who's getting those benefits? That's, a, that is, <laughs> all right. Where are they going? <laughs> it is that not is the independent the pharmacy owners. It is definitely not the independent pharmacy owners. Let's make that very clear. <laughs> yes. Where's that money going? And, and you know, and it's, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because we've seen these fees increase by thousands of percent. CMS reported 107,000% over 10 years. And drugs aren't cheaper. Premiums aren't less. Where's the money going? You know, what is it for? And, and it's a real, it's a real quandary. Uh, yeah. In terms... Go ahead, Greg, you were going to say something. No, I, I was just going to say, you know, it, it, it really is tied to the definition of negotiated price that, that CMS promulgated, right? And, and the definition of negotiated price basically says, hey, I'm paraphrasing here, but beneficiaries have to get the benefit of the discount um, unless they can't be reasonably calculated at the point of sale. And so lo and behold, you know, what, what prescription drug plans and pharmacy benefit managers have done is gone out of their way to design reimbursement methodologies to pharmacies, you know, and make it so complicated and intentional, intentionally design them so that the discounts are calculated on the back end, thereby giving them the ability to, to what? Deprive the beneficiary of that discount. That's what it's all about. It's all about exploiting that definition of negotiated price. And I've said this to a lot of people, this may be, be somewhat controversial, but you know, the, the unfortunate thing here is DIR fees, you know, if you're behind the counter and you're caring for patients and, and you have a heavy Medicare 
population and you know you're 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 working long hours and you're doing everything you can to care for that population and what happens you see you know patients with higher drug costs at the counter they're going without those medications right their outcomes aren't as good their adherence isn't as good and we'll talk about just how sort of perverse it is that they're compromising patient adherence and doing it under the auspices of patient outcomes and metrics but the the really sad part is and what we try to drill down on is pharmacists are almost like they're victims but they're secondary victims pbms can under reimburse pharmacies whenever they want however they want right and i think we all can recognize that fact what this is about is designing reimbursement methodologies that allow them to exploit the beneficiaries at the counter now it wreaks havoc on pharmacy there's no question about it but in my opinion the goal of what they're doing is, and I think it's insidious, but they are inflating prices at the counter on, for America's seniors. And then, of course, they're clawing the back on the back end. They can always under-reimburse pharmacy, but they have to really sort of, and frankly, I think they've driven a, a truck through this loophole, but they've exploited the definition of negotiated price to raise prices at seniors and shift that burden for prescription drugs over onto the backs of America's seniors and ultimately America's taxpayers. In a pretty sad state of affairs that the folks who are contracted with the United States government and who've been entrusted to administer prescription drug benefits have designed reimbursement methodologies in a way that effectively deprive America's seniors of the benefit of the program and in fact have them paying more for prescription drugs than they would were they paying cash. Absolutely, they're holding these patients ransom. Yeah. Yeah, and they're, and they're, they're doing it all on Main Street. They're not, I mean, not, you talk about the reimbursements and everything, and they're, they're raising prices. I think the report shows a 51% flip, while NADAC is showing that the prices are decreasing 8%. Everybody knows there's deflation in the generic drug market, but yet somehow it's increasing on that side. Makes you wonder why no one has connected the dots. There's a lot of dots that don't get connected in general right. in the system, but you would think... For sure, somebody would be looking at this public, publicly accessible database, and yet these prices and these fees that are going up. Uh, it, it's it's been an interesting point getting to this point. It's been an interesting ride, and now it almost feels like I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost feels like we are starting to maybe come to that that turning point in this issue, and that we might actually be on the verge of something happening here. I, I, no, I've not ever felt so optimistic, I guess I should say, but I'm curious what you, what you both think about that. Do you think we're at that point or do you think we might have like road to go before we start to see any meaningful reform in this area? Well, I'll make a quick comment and then let Greg run with it, but I, I definitely think we're there. And, and you ask, you know, why we commissioned this report. That's one of the reasons is there's so much activity and so much noise and so much scattering of conversations about it. This report pulls it all together. This report comes at a time and, and, and presents the argument that, hey, all these things that we've been hearing over the years, there's got to be something to this. This is a significant study, 8 million prescriptions. So I, I really do think that it, senior groups are starting to take a look at this. If you, if you look at some of the people who have reposted the, the report, there are a lot of folks that are outside of the pharmacy realm that are, are, are taking notice. And I want to go back to to Eric and Antonio. What's interesting about that is Eric had no tie to pharmacy. 
he, he worked for Shell Oil. Then, then, he, then he went to work for this little group of pharmacies and started noticing this. And he said, somebody's got to do something about this. And then he met some bald dude from uh, Ohio that was in pharmacy and, and it kind of took off from there. So again, at the beginning of this, Eric had absolutely no tie to pharmacy. Sorry, Greg, I kind of got off track there. <laughs> you know, it's funny though that you say that because I remember when I was first learning about this, I, I often tell the story about meeting Putt's past president, Teresa Dickinson. Uh, I My background is in strategic communications and PR and she had come to to ask for PR help about this whole pharmacy benefit manager. And this is back before it broke open with EpiPen. But, you know, I remember just like her telling me this, me being like, really? Because CVS seems like a really nice group of people. And, you know, now these years later, <laughs> they're the death star of the, you know, entire prescription drug system. So I, yeah, no, it's, I, when you get it, it's very hard to turn back. And so I am grateful that Eric, you know, saw that trend and that he met Antonio and that we're, we are where we are because they've published a number of yes. reports that have shown unequivocally over and over. We're really excited to see the support that you and the American pharmacist got that you put together. Um, I say you sponsored is probably the right way to say that um, because it, it really does confirm what we've been so concerned about, what we've been talking about and trying to raise the flag on and now, you know, here we have the data and I'm, I'm very optimistic that it's going to be seen and read by the right people and that we'll start to see some of the appropriate action. I mean, just the fact that CMS has once again called forward questions as to these fees and what's happening with the price concessions is really, I think, pretty exciting. It is. And I think what's what's nice and I think we would call on CMS for this is they have all the data. Right. So they can take what's in this report and they can do this analysis on a on a broader, grander scale. The data is at their fingertips. And beyond that, you know, CMS has significant authority to conduct audits and review records. Um, these are folks that are contracted with them and they've got obligations under the law and obligations under their contracts. And our hope is that CMS will leverage that. And in terms of us being on like a precipice, you know, Monique, I, I hope so, right? I feel as though, you know, more and more information is coming out and there's more and more broad support in the states. There's more and more broad support at the federal level. And, you know, there's so many pharmacy champions that are sort of blossoming. And, and, and you know, and I know you've, Putts, you know, brought together, you know, pharmacy champions in, in, in the past for, for panel discussions, which are always awesome. Um, and, and those champions are growing. And so I think that's that's great news and I'm optimistic about that. But what I would say is pharmacy has to fight the right fights, right? And we have to fight the fights worth fighting. And that means sometimes we have to play some chess. I think we've got to be bold. I think we've got to be aggressive. And I think most importantly, you know, we can't live at the table that the pharmacy benefits managers set. Right, um, we've got to we've got to chart our own course for what we believe is a healthy prescription drug program that's going to be good for patients, that's going to improve outcomes, that's going to reduce costs, and that's also at the same time going to be fair for pharmacies, right? Because if pharmacies aren't there, if independent pharmacies aren't there, community pharmacies aren't there, you know, I think one thing we've seen out of the pandemic is that community pharmacies are the backbone of of you know their communities and central healthcare hubs. And as those go away, you know, there, there are severe repercussions throughout the healthcare system for that. 
Um, but we've got to fight the right fights and we've got to use the right angles. And I think, you know, to APCI's credit, and this is long before I joined APCI, but to APCI's credit and Tim's credit, I think they saw the value of the angle that three axis and 46 Brooklyn brought, um, you know, maybe before anybody, right? And, and have had a long relationship with them looking at that. But Monique, we've talked about finding the right angles and being aggressive. And we've talked about this, right? For six years, pharmacy was fighting audits while PBMs were sucking all their patients out the back door via steering, right? Um, we've, we've got to fight the right fights and, and we, we've got to set the table. And so I think that speaks to, you know, right now CMS does have this proposed regulation and it's awesome that CMS is looking at it, right? I think it's fantastic. And I think pharmacy wide has done an amazing job of shining a light on the issue to the level that you've got congressmen calling for reform, that you've got CMS looking for it. But if you look at the proposed reg, you know, even if it does get implemented, it doesn't stop retroactive fees. PBMs can continue to under reimburse. Um, PBMs can keep doing the same games in the coverage gap. PBMs can continue to steer. It's time for us to have kind of bold ideas, bold thoughts, and evolve the way PBMs evolve, right? They, you know, if, if they if they see an inch, again, they drive a Mack truck through it. And so if we don't think that they haven't already figured out a way to live within this proposed rule and make out better than everybody, you know, I, I think we're all being being naive pharmacy-wide. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mentioned in some of their contracts that if dir fees do somehow go away basically they say their profits won't go away they will find other admin fees or they will find other ways to get that profit share and so as an owner that's intimidating and hard to stomach sometimes thinking you're trying to fight this beast and they're already finding other loopholes that we can't even see yet so. Well, it, during the last negotiating period from a PSAO's perspective, you know, when, when it looked like there might be something done a couple of years ago, uh, you know, if, if you wanted to be in a network, you, or, or networks were presented two contracts, one with the IR fees and one without. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was really dead net, no difference in either, either one. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think another good sign for us, Monique, we, it's kind of the topic we're talking about, is we've gone from the days of begging to get an audience in DC and begging for legislators to listen to us to them calling Eric, major legislators calling Eric and Antonio to come to DC to meet with them. You know, all of us are having more opportunities to go and sit down with the legislators and talk about that. I think that's a very good sign. That is a good sign. I think, Greg, you've been having some pretty hefty conversations up on the Hill too. Am I right about that? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we've been trying. Absolutely. You know, obviously, we spend a lot of time in the states um, and, you know, not not exclusive at the federal level, but we've had, you know, certainly high level conversations with CMS. Monique, I know we were both on a call regarding anti-competitive practices mm -hmm. um, with with the FTC recently as well. And, and certainly we're trying to have have these conversations everywhere and everywhere we can. And, and have them loudly. But I'm going to circle back and be redundant here because, I, again, the point that I want to just be crystal clear on for pharmacy-wide is we've got to have bold solutions. And in my opinion, and I said this, I don't remember where I said it, but I said it recently, we need to take their ball away from them, 
right? They cannot be trusted anymore to negotiate drug prices, to set drug prices. And that's what makes this, this NADAC model to me so intriguing, right? It brings transparency and it takes away their ability to manipulate price because what they do when they're at their best, and when I say best, I mean worst, is you know they pay, play arbitrage from every angle. They're, they've monetized everything. And it's not about healthcare. It's not about getting drugs to patients. It's about monetizing. And, you know, there are replete studies and there are periodicals and publications from the PBMs themselves that reinforce this. The higher the cost of the drug, the less adherent the patient, right? And so when we see behaviors like a 51% increase, when we see behaviors of exploiting the definition of negotiated price so that the benefit, you know, the discounts come on the back end and the patient pays the inflated gross price. You know, what, are, what we're talking about here is compromising patient outcomes. And the interesting thing in Part D is the healthcare plans themselves, Part D is, you know, sort of operating in, in a silo, in a bubble, prescription drug benefits only. If it results, if this practice results in less adherence and increased hospital readmissions or, you know, diabetic patients have, you know, having to get amputations or whatever the case may be, that, that doesn't impact their bottom line, right, as a prescription drug plan or as a pharmacy benefits manager. Yeah, you know, and as, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about the, the letter, you submitted a 14-page letter, we submitted a three-page letter. Not a competition. And Monique, we made it clear to Greg, he wanted us to pay him by the word when he came over. I said, no, no, I was wondering about that. Yeah, no, I was reading his letter. I'm like, dang, this is a really good letter. My letter, uh, more or less, and this was, you know, on behalf of, of Pup, the PUP board, the PUP, the PUP membership, it just more or less said, we propose you just end the fees altogether. Just stop with them. They serve no purpose. And from what we can tell, they serve no purpose, but uh, gosh, there are some folks that look like they're getting mighty wealthy while uh, the rest of us are, are paying more and more in fees on these things. But um, in your letter, I mean, you made some really strong points and I was wondering if you, you know, would share some of the ones that you, that, you know, some of the things that you said, what you felt strongly about in, in this message that you delivered to CMS. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm going to backtrack for one second because we were talking about you know, sort of patient outcomes, et cetera. But as we all know, and probably most of the folks listening, a lot of these quote DIR fees, these price concessions are linked to alleged patient outcome scores and metrics, right? So they're increasing costs on patients at the counter when there's a known connection between increased drug costs and patient adherence and then poorer patient outcomes. And they're increasing those costs under the auspices of quote, patient outcome scores and metrics, right? If you're a pharmacist who's, who's killing yourself behind the counter to care for your patients and you see the price rising, you see the patient becoming less adherent, and then the PBM is penalizing you on the back end for it, Lauren, I don't know if you want to put words to how that feels. I, I sure can. And um, we also have another association we work with, the Community Oncology Alliance, and they are very much in support of eliminating DIR fees because their, their oncology practices that have pharmacies in them, they're charged DIR fees. Now, most oncology pharmacies aren't dispensing diabetic medications, right. statins, things like that. And so they're getting DIR fees and they're getting hurt on these metrics that they're 
providers aren't responsible for monitoring for their patients. And whenever they bring that statistic up to legislators or other community groups that they work with, it's amazing to see the people in the audience, the light bulb really goes off whenever they hear, oh, cancer patients are being affected by DIR fees because obviously if they're having to pay these DIR fees, they're unable to help additional patients. And that's really what it is. That's another barrier to healthcare. That's another issue for adherence. I mean, uh, we in our pharmacies, three pharmacies we own, we had over $200,000 in DIR fees last year. I know one of the loudest supporters of PUT um, has 15 pharmacies in Illinois, and he has over a million dollars in DIR fees in the last year. And think of all the patients that are unable to be helped just because of those DIR fees that we're unable to do anything about. It, it, you know, it's shattered pharmacy, but, what, you know, what we work closely with, you know, oncology groups as well, and obviously they're being held to these DIR fees, and then they, they, they maybe bear the brunt of patient steering as much or more than anyone, and I, I don't remember who I was talking to recently, but oncology, you know, oncologists to me are fighting two cancers now, right? One, they're fighting the cancer that's afflicting their patients, but they're also fighting the cancer that pharmacy benefit managers are are ravaging within their system, um, and they're and they're fighting valiantly. Certainly, um, you know, Monique. To circle back, you know, obviously one of the one of the things that that we propose is for CMS to look at and work with Congress to to start looking at implementing a NADAC system. Um, the AWP system has failed, and you know the funny thing is, you know, NADAC was born out of games with AWP and Medicaid programs. And I, I don't quote me on the year, I think it was 2013 or 2014 and the OIG basically recommended, hey, there's so many games with AWP pricing that this, you know, moving to a, a transparent benchmark system works. And so what we have is we've got CMS right now via Myers and Stauffer that's administering that act. I, I'm gonna say this, I don't know it, but right. You, I'm picturing a hallway with two different sides. One is Part D, and and on the other side is is Medicaid, right? In Medicaid, you've got NADAC, things are transparent, pharmacists are paid a fair dispensing fee, there's no games, you don't have the steering, you don't have the price manipulation, but if you walk across the hall, good God, anything goes. And that's not all, you know, look, that's not necessarily CMS's fault. CMS, in certain ways, their hands are tied, you know, via the non-interference clause. Although, you know, obviously their definition of negotiated price has enabled PBMs to, to exploit, you know, to exploit that current definition as we've already discussed, but certainly move to NADAC and working with Congress to look at that. Um, but I think that there's actions that CMS can, can take on top of that and, and need to take. And I think one of them is to actually, and you see this in, in certain states already, but essentially something like, you know, a, a unfair and deceptive trade practices, you know, just identifying practices that PBMs and prescription drug plans cannot engage in. Or you can put another way, a beneficiary bill of rights and a pharmacy bill of rights. But there are certain practices that should not happen. They're abhorrent. And, you know, one of them is the, is the copay clawbacks, which the three axis, you know, report honed in on. And y'all probably remember this, Lauren, I know you'll remember this, but around 2017 or 18, that practice was just prolific in the states and the commercial markets. And, you know, it was sort of so abhorrent and so disgusting that states mobilized in a way that they really hadn't. And just a slew of states moved to prohibit those copay clawbacks, right? Because literally patients are being charged at the counter 
And and back then it was a little more obvious. They were being charged at the counter. You know, let's say they're they're being charged a fifty dollar copay, and there'd be a negative thirty on the pharmacy screen, right, on the adjudication. That thirty was going back instantly. Well, what did we talk about earlier? PBMs evolved, so now it's not quite so clear, right? You don't know at the point of sale, but lo and behold, it's the same game, and it's going on in Part D. And those copay clawbacks were a catalyst to aggressive action by legislators to protect patients. And now we know because of this study that they're doing it to America's seniors, right? Fixed income, um, you know, multiple chronic conditions, multiple medications, and they're, and they're engaging in this very practice that states thought that they prohibited. And so that should absolutely be a prohibited practice. It should, you know, it should be prohibited to protect the patient. It should be pro prohibited to protect the pharmacy. And I think CMS should take immediate action to address that. And I hope pharmacy-wide, and obviously this report just came out this week, but I what I would love to do is work with stakeholders, you know, for pharmacy-wide to rally behind this concept, right? There are practices that should not happen, and it's not okay. And I think what happens is people get used to being victimized, right? You get desensitized to it. How is this not shocking? How is, you know, every organization that deals with healthcare, not singing this from the rooftops this week, right? This is not okay. It is not okay. And my hope is that, that as that practice sort of gets, you know, I'd love to see, you know, in every state, folks organizing to give examples of those to legislators and to give examples of those to lawmakers at the state level and the federal level. It was a massive catalyst to change at the state level in commercial markets in 2016, 17, and 18. And now we, we know that they're doing it in part D today. And so, you know, again, I think CMS has the authority and, and certainly Congress does to take swift action to protect patients, to take swift action to protect pharmacies. And that's that's just one part. Again, you know, this is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of sort of nuanced conversation about, hey, you know, patient metrics should be uh, transparent, they should be universal, they should be, you know, no. You shouldn't tie the reimbursement of a drug to a patient outcome. Pharmacies should be paid for patient outcomes, right? Just like every other provider. And so again, that comes with sort of the pharmacy benefit managers setting the table. We're now in a position where we're fighting over, hey, do it on the front end and make it transparent. When to me, the real conversation should be, no, don't do it at all. And so that's another sort of, I think, big linchpin as well. And also just sort of reminding CMS, not that they necessarily need reminding, but hey, listen, you, you know, you have significant authority here. And, you know, in, if you look at their contracts with prescription drug plans, A, it says they're responsible for their downstream contractors like PBMs. It also says that they're going to adhere to, you know, that they're going to adhere to state law unless it's explicitly preempted. Well, you know, copay clawbacks isn't something that CMS prohibits, so there's no established standard. So I think another thing CMS can do is look in, hey, are they in breach of our contracts? Are they in breach of federal law because they're violating state law? So, you know, we had a, a slew of recommendations, but, you know, central to those are it's time to act decisively to protect beneficiaries. It's time to act decisively to protect patients. It's time to use CMS's authority to evaluate these practices. And it's time for CMS to work with Congress and other stakeholders to move to a transparent NADAC type model. Until we do those things, there'll be small steps forward, but the PBMs are going to adjust and they're going to continue to find ways to exploit pharmacies, taxpayers, and patients. Amen to that, Greg. That's 
Yeah, just very well said. Very, very well said. And and kudos to you and Tim and and everyone at APCI for you know taking up that flag and just marching forward with it. Uh, you said some very important things, and you're absolutely right about the clawbacks. Uh, I remember that that was 2018. Putt Putt was behind a series of stories that played out across the country uh, about gag clauses and clawbacks. The Trump administration put a law into place uh, that at least eliminated the gag clause. And now yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, did it not eliminate the COVID clawback? Because we've been seeing that start to show up again. And of course, as we all know, everybody on this podcast knows that you know working to try to implement PBM reform is just a one giant game of whack-a-mole and it's, it's frustrating and it requires enormous patience and it requires education because you know I, I'm in Arizona as you know people know um, I, I uh, office out of Phoenix Arizona so I, I am actually in a Republican state and there's a, a very conservative view in this state about regulating businesses and not interfering in contract practices. And of course, you know, we are also the home of CVS Caremark. And yet even here in Arizona, our legislators are, are waking up to the kinds of practices that have been happening that hurt small business providers, pharmacies, doctors. And it's not even about the small business providers. It's really anyone who's involved in the process of caring for a patient or providing some kind of treatment protocol, these are the, the people who are having to overcome greater and greater obstacles. And then you have the patients who really just want to get their care. They, they want to get better. They want to have access to that medicine. And yet time and time again, you know, we have uh, ridiculous things in our way that we have to overcome. And so it's, it's a good time, just kind of going back to where we started the podcast, it's a good time and it's a time to be optimistic. We got where we were in 2018 as a function of the, the grassroots, as Tim, Tim said it very well, the grassroots effort that uh, started back then, people getting involved, people coming out, people telling their stories. And I believe so strongly that we have to keep that up that this is not an independent pharmacy problem. It's, it's not uh, you know, just a patient problem. It's not just a taxpayer problem. It's an all of us problem and we're all interconnected on it. So I just, I really applaud you. I know our members do and we, we just are grateful for everything you guys are doing for this cause. Thank you. Well, you've said that three times and we're, we're very appreciative for the kind words and, and we'll accept them. But you know what? This this is more than APCI. This is bigger than APCI. Putt has done so much with this effort and, and with others. Other national and local pharmacy groups have done some things uh, and they work diligently to push this ball towards the goal line. But Monique, all of us, all of us have members that kind of sit back and let, let hey, let, that's what my performance, what my group is for. We need. We tell our members we need 1,800 lobbyists or advocates. We can't call them lobbyists. We need 1,800 yes. advocates. Yes. Talking to the legislators, talking to the community. Hey, post this report. Uh, send it to your legislators. Do you know people with senior groups in your area? Go meet with them. Talk to them about them. It's 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 truly been, you know, again we 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 are appreciative of the thanks, but but we're not the only ones in this fight and. Uh, it, 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 it takes a team, no doubt about it. 
That's great. Very well said. So we're coming to the end of the, the podcast and, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a complex problem with the system right now, direct and indirect remuneration fees. And I know there's not a one size fits all solution, but as we, you know, sort of close up today, I'd love both of your thoughts. What do you think the solution is or a solution is, or even just what, what should we do next? For anyone listening to this, what, what should we do next toward a solution here? Again, I'll kick it off and let Greg, Greg close it out, close that out. Um, he's already talked about, uh, you know, can, can we trust the PBMs to do it? There's other models out there, NADAC. Again, NADAC showing a decline while, you know, the current system showing a, a huge increase. In Alabama, about 10, 12, 13 years ago, we, we worked, APCI worked directly with the Medicaid commissioner here. And I think we were the first state to, to put in place the actual acquisition cost, AAC plus, plus a dispensing fee. That's been in place with Alabama Medicaid for 13 or so years. And it's the only 13-year history in the state of Alabama where somebody's not complaining about Medicaid. It works. It's a fair price for Medicaid. They're happy. They're saving money. Uh, Eric ran a report for us uh, about a year or so ago that said since it started, it saved $120 million for the state of Alabama Medicaid program. You know, those kind of things can work. Everybody has to say, well, everybody's not going to send in their price. Well, in Alabama, if you don't send it in on the date, it's a $10,000 fine per day. And we even put that fine on independence. And we said, hey, if, if you want to play, you, you got to be able to participate. You got to be willing to participate. Uh, so so it, that program has really worked. But I, we've really landed on the NADAC model. And, there, you know, it's not perfect. But, uh, again, you've got to have a fair standard to start with. Or if, if you can't, if you're building a house and you don't start with a square foundation, you ain't going to want to live in it by the time you finish, right? Yeah, you know, I, I agree. And, frankly, don't have a whole lot to add to that, right? Again, I, th I think the premise is we know enough to know that, the plans and the pharmacy benefit managers don't need to be setting the prices. And I think, you know, NADAC is something that CMS is already administering. And I think that's where the advocacy needs to go. I think that's the direction it needs to go. And I think now is the time for independents to, you know, really mobilize and, you know, continue to make sure that their voices are heard, at, whether that's at the federal level or the state level. It's not the time to, to let the foot off the gas. I think it's also a time for, look, pharmacists are the ones that are behind the counter every day and so it's also a time for new ideas and so you know we, we certainly think that that NADAC it represents sort of a simple as complex as the problem is saying hey here's a here's a benchmark of the average actual acquisition cost let's implement this and let's stop certain abhorrent practices that's really not that complicated of a concept and so, but again I think pharmacy needs to get loud I think they need to continue to shine a light on practices that the three axis report, the, the copay clawbacks, um, you know, the massive price hikes on seniors, the impact that has it, it, you know, pharmacy, it's the time to step on the gas and, you know, throw the punches because I'm certainly not a doomsday type person, but how many more years can some of these pharmacies hang on? Right. Um, particularly the ones that are really <laughs> Medicare heavy and, you know, also Medicaid heavy, right. It's, it's the government programs caring for the country's most vulnerable that's that's literally putting them out of business sometimes. Well said, I'm so Lauren. grateful, Tim, that you're letting Greg be the sledgehammer to really kill these PBOs. Hey, I am so glad you used that term. I was going to say, Monique, before I get off the call, 
uh, I got a I got a call from Greg's wife Melissa, and she said, "Look, it would be a great night at the Rybold household if you could call Greg's uh, sledgehammer one time. He's taught <laughs> the kids to call him that. So, man, you beat me to it, Lauren. That is awesome. Thank you so much." She, yeah. Okay. Note to self: Moving forward, Greg's nickname. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But but Tim, really seriously, Greg allows independent pharmacy owners to really have a partner and step out. And APCI does this so well. I mean, Greg did this in Georgia, but now he can do it in other states and federally. You know, some independent owners are still afraid of retaliation. And Greg has worked with multiple owners to get them in front of legislators and get them in front of other people, decision makers, to show that while this is scary and intimidating, you have to do it for your business. And people well, are listening. When Greg asked me, to that, told me that Monique had invited me, you know, my, my personality is uh, I, I, I hire really, really good people. The people that, that are hired here at APCI are a whole lot smarter than me. I can't tell Greg how to, how to do legislatively. I, I can't, I mean, we have so many people here that are experts in their field. My job is just to put them all together and get out of their way. And I, I, this is Greg's baby. Greg and, and, and Antonio have worked tremendously together and, and Bill Ely here in our office has been very involved as well. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm getting out of his way, sister. This is his, this is his ballpark and, and he's, he's very good at it. Well, I, I appreciate it, but I'll tell you something that, that's, that's pretty cool. And Lauren, I think you heard some of the testimony in Georgia that, you know, that, that what was that probably two weeks ago and you heard from some pharmacists and some, some of the most powerful testimony I've heard in years. Um, and, you know, not that this matters or doesn't matter, but for a lot of organizations, it would matter. But, you know, you know, Tim and APCI also empowers us to work with pharmacists, period, regardless of buying group. Right. Amen. And so, you know, that that pharmacist that you heard talk, who, who I thought, again, gave some of the most impassioned testimony that I've heard in years and that I think really, really moved. You could feel the the oxygen in the room. Right. The, the, the tenor of the room changed. You know, we, we are all ultimately you know, fighting for the same thing. And um, and and you know, we're doing it as aggressively as we can, and and we're going to keep doing that. Absolutely, legislators hear from an upset voter or constituent maybe once or twice. We see that same constituent eleven to twelve <laughs> times a year, and so the pharmacist is the touch point, and the legislators are really understanding this that this vulnerable population is voters, the seniors that APCI. You know, it references in this report are voters for them. And so that is not a population that legislators can ignore any longer, especially because some of the Part D age demographic seems to be a little closer to some of those legislators' ages than <laughs> I guess it used to be. So they're more of their uh, peers as opposed to just some of their uh, older constituents. Great point. Well said, everybody. Well, Tim, Greg, it has been a real pleasure having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for taking time out to be with us on the podcast. For everyone who's listening, thank you so much for listening. Lauren, by the way, thank you. You're always such a great co-host. I enjoy working with you. If you like the show, please leave us a comment. We are always uh, interested in feedback from our listeners. And until next time, this is Tony Whitney. This is the podcast. We'll see you next month.